0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor.
1: Today, the long-term survival rates of people after a heart attack, who does well and who doesn't.
0: The difference that biological sex makes in how cancer is treated, skin-to-skin contact or medical intervention for extremely small premature babies,
1: why not have both? And a condition that's kept many parents awake at night, comforting a crying, feverish child who turns out to have a middle ear infection, otitis media. And some parents have to deal with this again and again and become worried about the amount of antibiotics their child is having. Sometimes the GP refers the child to an ear, nose and throat surgeon in the hope that maybe inserting tubes, grommets through the eardrum might help. The operation is called tympanostomy with tube insertion. Now, a trial has been done comparing repeated courses of antibiotics with grommets. Study leader was Professor Alejandro Hoberman, Chief of General Academic Paediatrics at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Children's Hospital. And I spoke to him earlier. Uh, welcome to The Health Report. Thank you. What did we know before you did this study?
2: Well, we knew that uh, children uh, have frequently recurrent acute otitis media. Acute otitis media infections is the most common reason for children to get an antibiotic. And we do know that about 20% of children experience recurrent acute otitis media and that previous studies that had been done, usually in the 80s and 90s, except one that was conducted in 2012, were done before the introduction of pneumococcal conjugate vaccine as a routine immunization for children. And the main goal of placing tympanostomy tubes in children has been to reduce the rate of ear infections after placement of tympanostomy tubes or grommets. And following that, the concern was that if we use antimicrobial treatment with episodes of ear infections, we will enhance the likelihood of children harboring a resistant pathogen that then is going to cause the next ear infection. So those were the two main reasons for placing tympanostomy tubes.
1: So the conversation about glue ear has disappeared. I mean, in the olden days, you know, you had this gunk inside the middle ear and you could see the fluid there. It was affecting the child's hearing. And that was one reason why, particularly in um, and and sometimes in uh, disadvantaged kids, particularly aboriginal kids in Australia, you would have a perforation and a discharge from the ear as well. So there was this whole debate about glue ear as well and loss of hearing.
2: Sure. So the uh, you know specific populations may be at higher risk, and, and I'm, those are not the patients that we enrolled in our clinical trials. I would say the ship of the glue ear and the otitis media with effusion sailed many years ago, and my mentor Jack Paradise, and I, my endowed, my endowment at Children's Hospital is is labeled the Jackal Paradise Endowed Professor of Pediatric Research, is uh, he conducted a study in the late 90s and uh, during the early 2000s, in which he showed that among children with persistent fluid in the ear or glue ear, those children did not benefit from tympanostomy tube placement for varying periods of time, longer periods of time. And there was not much benefit and there was no impact on the child's language acquisition and um, on their cognitive skills because they were tested all the way through like when they were like 10 or 11 years old and they were not smarter because of getting grommets placed. So that, that's not the population we studied in this study. In this study, we were dealing with, so what happened over the years, we stopped, doing grommets for persistent middle ear effusion and we continue doing a lot of grommets for recurrent acute otitis media, recurrent bouts of ear infection, with the thinking was that if you put grommets in you would decrease the frequency of episodes and then you will not expose them to multiple course of antibiotics, hence making them more likely to have resistant bacteria with the next infection.
1: So this study was a comparison of the two?
2: This study was a comparison of a tympanostomy tube placement. So first we enrolled a large group of children, 1,300 children were assessed for eligibility and about 1,000 kids uh, under age uh, three years, 35 months, uh, were eligible to be screened all along. We followed them to determine if they truly had recurrent ear infections, and that's defined as three in six months or four in one year with one over the last six months. And at that point, 250 of those children were randomized, half to get grommets and have to continue to be treated with antibiotics every time they have any infection. And they were followed for two years. And? and 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 let me expand a little bit on the two years. Many of the previous studies have been short-lived, and there was a short benefit for a few months, and then things did not work as well. So we did the two-year study to try to find out if there was a different rate of ear infections and there was none so the, the tympanostomy 2 group had a rate of ear infections of 1.48 episodes per year over the two-year follow-up and the antimicrobial treatment group had a 1.56 or so one and a half episodes of ear infections and the thinking ahead of time was that it would reduce by about one and a half episodes the ear infections by at least 33 percent and it didn't happen and um, not only that but also as we looked at resistance in the nasopharynx, in the back of the throat, in the back of the nose of children, eh, at the time they had an ear infection, when they were coming for routine follow-up, and at the end of the respiratory season, with the thinking being that if they got multiple courses during a a specific viral uh, season eh, in the winter months, then at the end of the season, they are going to be most likely to have resistant bacteria. We compare the two groups and see where they were, and there was no increased likelihood of antimicrobial resistance. So none of the two reasons that generally were used to prescribe the insertion of tympanostomy tubes or grommets uh, panned out in our case. Um, what is the take-home of this study? What, what would be the story? Can, should nobody get tympanostomy tubes? And the answer is no. They, I, I would say if we have children that have declared themselves as having recurrent otitis media, three in six months, four in one year, the general practitioner can take a deep breath and continue to treat them with antibiotics and see how they behave over the next few months, I would say. If they have two more ear infections in three months or three more in six months, then placing tympanostomy tubes among those children would be okay. So in other words, meet the criteria for recurrent acute otitis media twice, not only once. And that way you will decrease probably 50 to 75% the number of uh, children that get tympanostomy, tubes or grommets.
1: But you didn't have a third arm, which is no treatment at all, because a lot of these, Correct. Um, these infections would have been viral, not bacterial.
2: Um, you're talking to the wrong interviewee for that. I don't believe that a lot of the, the infections are viral. I would say all the infections are viral, but they start with a viral infection. And then whenever... That virus occludes and obstructs the Eustachian tube, the tube that communicates the middle ear with the back of the throat. It actually then generates negative pressure in the middle ear. And then when it opens up and the child swallows, that negative pressure is released, and then bacteria are sucked from the back of the nose, the back of the throat into the middle ear, causing infection. So if you look for viruses, I've done those studies many years ago, in which you look for multiple, you do a multiplex PCR for all the viruses, adenovirus, influenza. A respiratory sensation virus, and so forth, you're always going to find them because those are the culprits of starting the problem. But at the time the child has a bulging eardrum with the eardrum moving towards the outside, filled with pus, that's bacterial 95% of the time. So it's not 100% true, it's, they're all viral. But the kind of ear infections that we were randomizing in our study, calling recurrent acute otitis media, where bulging eardrums filled with pus. And if I put a needle through those eardrums, which I've done many times, eh, you actually get a bacteria almost 100% of the time.
1: So general practitioners here in Australia, primary care physicians here in Australia, are taught that um, you can hang on with the otitis media and not give antibiotics, and they will resolve. Is this a problem with diagnosis that they're just seeing a red drum, but it's not a true otitis media? Uh,
2: mostly, yes, I would say. In general, uh, red eardrums don't mean much and we don't treat red eardrums or pink eardrums. We want to see bulging of the tympanic membrane. So the accuracy of diagnosis of a ear infections is hard, Pediatricians are right. generally 80% of the time. We have been very stringent in what we call an episode of an ear infection or acute otitis media, requiring bulging of the tympanic membrane. And in those cases, those are bacterial infections most of the time. And yes, it's not a life-threatening disease. So if you leave even a child with a bulging eardrum enough days, eventually they will get better. I think of a t- acute otitis media ear infections as as life. You know where it starts, you know where it ends. The question is what's the quality of it's in between. So if you let them go for many days, you you eventually they're gonna get better.
1: Without the perforation. But
2: it, sometimes they perforate and they drain and the children is instantly relieved. It, but many times they slowly get better. But the quality of life of those days in between is not the same because they're having ear pain during that period of time.
1: So what, So you've got a parent listening to us and they've got a, you know, a, a, a 12 or 14 month old who's not terribly articulate and they've got a fever, they're unwell, they're holding their ear and they go to see the doctor and the doctor sees a red eardrum, but it's not bulging. I mean, what's, what's the story for parents out of this?
2: So that study I actually did a few years back. We had an NIH grant in which we compared antibiotics versus placebo, and um, we we didn't treat them, and we followed them for 10 days. And what we found that if you treat them with antibiotics, about 85% of the time, they don't have a bulging eardrum 10 days later. 85. So still, it's not a bug versus drug disease. There is a host uh, in the middle that determines whether the child improves or doesn't improve. So in some way, if you treat with antibiotics, 85, 86% of the time, you're going to have resolution of that bulging eardrum. If you don't treat with antibiotics, only 50% of the time. So 50% of the time, they get better. But the question is, do you want that the remaining children there to get better faster? and have symptoms improve faster. So in a 12-month-old, 13-month-old, with fever and a bulging eardrum, I have no doubt that the right treatment is an appropriate antimicrobial therapy for 10 days. We've done also a study comparing 5 days and 10 days and showed that 10 days is better than 5 days.
1: And just to summarise, if the GP looks in the ear and just sees a normal-looking eardrum, except that it's a bit red, that's not a cause for antibiotics?
2: I would not treat that patient. I would not even call that an ear infection. So that's part of the viral illness that you were talking about before. It's a little red. There's no bulging of the eardrum, even though the child may be uncomfortable because of the fever and the viral illness, but that's not an ear
1: infection. And if the child's complaining of ear pain and there's no bulging eardrum?
2: Reasons for ear pain may include negative pressure in the middle ear. So a red eardrum that it's retracted and sucked in because of the negative pressure in the ear may hurt. So in some way, giving Tylenol, making them feel more comfortable, but antibiotics are not needed for that generally.
1: Fascinating. Thanks very much indeed for joining
2: us. Wonderful. Thank you so much.
1: Professor Alejandro Hoberman is Chief of General Academic Paediatrics at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Centre Children's Hospital. And this is RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan and Tegan Taylor.
0: When babies have to be born premature and very small, time is of the essence. These little ones often can't breathe, feed or maintain their body temperature on their own and keeping them alive involves putting supports around them quickly. But we know that skin-to-skin contact as early as possible after birth is really important for both mum and baby. Now a research team trying to improve survival for very low birth weight babies has tried doing both of these things at the same time and found it makes a big difference. Rajiv Baal was one of the researchers behind the project. Welcome Rajiv.
3: Thank you, Tegan, and uh, glad to be on the program. So we're talking about
0: extremely fragile babies that need to be ventilated or have drips put in as soon as possible, surely less is more at this stage. Why would you be touching them even more or doing all this on a mother's chest?
3: So uh, one of the things that is extremely important to understand is that, uh, as you said, skin-to-skin contact and kangaroo mother care, which is continuous skin-to-skin contact, has been shown to be protective and reduce mortality in these preterm and small babies. This has been shown now for a couple of decades. However, what was known earlier is that we had to wait until the babies were clinically stable, which meant the things that you talked about, that they were able to breathe by themselves, they were able to maintain their body temperature, and they were probably even able to feed a little bit. But most of the mortality in these babies occurs relatively early, within the first two to three days. And therefore, what we tried to do is to use the kangaroo mother care early on, starting immediately after birth, without waiting for these babies to get stable, and look at the mortality impact of that. As you have seen in the paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine last week, Uh, there was a 25% reduction in mortality in these babies who were started on skin-to-skin care or kangaroo mother care immediately after birth compared to waiting for the baby to become stable.
0: Right. So what you're saying is previously some of these babies, they're put into a humidity crib, they're trying to stabilise them, and that's when they die. So what's the survival rate uh, usually for babies born at these very low weights? In your study, you were looking at babies weighing as little as one kilo
3: The survival rate is very variable. So depending upon where you are, so in a country like yours, in Australia, it may be quite low. Uh, Even a couple of percent children may may not survive. Uh, But it is as high as 40% mortality among these children in a country in Africa. So the rates vary 20 to 30 times between different countries. Uh, we tested this intervention in high mortality settings where the mortality was between 20 and 40 percent before starting this intervention. And we found that by improving care of these children, we could already reduce mortality in both the intervention and control arms. But still, the difference was quite huge. So there was a, about a 16 percent mortality in the control arm which was starting KMC later versus a 12% mortality among those who were initiated KMC early. So mortality depends upon the circumstances and the care that's available.
0: What's the logistics of doing this? You're trying to ventilate a baby while it's lying on its mum's
3: chest. So and there are two things that I would like to explain. Uh, One, that we did not do the level three care, which includes, let's say, ventilation uh, in this study. We we, we did, uh, let's say, continuous positive airway pressure support or oxygenation required oxygen therapy support and all other interventions except ventilation. In any case, ventilation was not available in four out of the five countries where we were working in these uh, newborn ICUs. So I will not talk about the ventilation, but I will tell you a little bit about that from another setting, which is in Scandinavia. Uh, But in the study, it was uh, when children required any other support, uh, they were still kept in skin-to-skin contact with their moms. So two things were absolutely needed. Firstly, you had to have the mother in the newborn ICU. So that's not usually the design of the ICUs. So we had to change the design of half of the ICU to actually have the mothers or mothers' beds uh, in the ICU where either the mother or a surrogate chosen by the mother, if the mother was unwell, was able to provide the skin-to-skin care. So that was the one big infrastructural change. Right, so the second issue was that these babies are, as you said, very small and very tiny, and they need monitoring and they need support at that time. So adequate monitoring of the baby's breathing, the baby's heart rate, the baby's vitals, uh, was critical during providing the skin-to-skin care.
0: It's a lot to ask of a mum. In your study, these babies were getting seventeen hours of skin-to-skin contact a day. How did the mums respond to this?
3: Yeah, that's an excellent question. In fact, when we started the study, we were a little bit concerned that mothers, when they see their babies who are not so well, how would they respond? How would they take care of their babies? And would it be a lot of stress on them, etc.? And we were. A little bit skeptical to begin with to tell you the truth in fact when we were doing the first training in delhi uh, in in Safdarjung hospital the first mother who was 20 something mother who was uh, brought into the icu we explained to her what we were trying to do is to hold her baby skin to skin and she was quite willing to do that but the moment the nurse put the baby on the mother's chest the mother started crying quite a lot and we were all very concerned that she's really very stressed at this moment. And when we asked her, she said that I have never been more stressed before. In fact, you can't imagine how much relief I'm feeling when I have my baby with me because I wasn't even sure whether my baby is alive or not. So in fact, that's not just an anecdote. We have found that almost all mothers have been extremely happy not only to be with their babies but also to contribute to their care and to contribute to helping them survive so mothers uh, from the mother's side and as the family's side there has been very very little uh, in terms of resistance in fact it has been a lot of relief and a lot of um, uh, willingness to be able to do that
0: good for mother and good for baby dr rajiv thank you so much for joining us
3: thank you very much
0: dr rajiv Bal is head of research at the department of maternal newborn child and adolescent health and aging with the world health organization
1: australia has been one of the world's leading nations in the prevention and prompt treatment of heart attacks a blockage of blood to a segment of heart muscle Deaths from heart attacks have fallen at a rate of about 2% per annum for many years, which adds up to a lot of lives saved. But even so, heart disease remains a huge killer, and having had one heart attack puts a person at risk of both heart failure and another heart attack, not to mention other problems. So the healthcare system might be terrific at getting you home in good shape, but what happens over the next few years? Who does well and who doesn't? Turns out it's not a question we're very good at answering. We're pretty lousy at long-term follow-up, and we've had to rely on overseas statistics until now. New research has brought together data from every Australian state and territory, as well as New Zealand, to analyse seven-year survival rates for women and women who've had a heart attack. Dr Bora Ladlachki from the Lyle McEwen Hospital in Adelaide is one of the study's authors. Welcome to the Health Report, Bora.
4: Thank you for having me. It's good to be here.
1: So tell us about the study.
4: Um, yeah, so this study is really exciting because it's a first of its kind here in Australia. It's population-wide, so... We're not worrying about generalizing. We have everyone. Um, We looked at people with um, heart attacks from 2009 to 2015, getting a very large contemporary cohort. And we looked at primarily survival over seven years. So we knew a lot about short-term outcomes, but we wanted to give patients and clinicians more knowledge on what happens. So
1: this is a a record linkage study where you're linking the records from hospital through to the rest of their medical care.
4: Exactly, exactly. So this is data that's already there. We routinely collect hospital data, but it seems that no one has been using it and we've linked it to death registry data to be able to do this study.
1: So what did you find?
4: Um, I think the primary takeaway from this is that we're actually doing fairly well. Um, So survival over seven years is just above 60%, which when you compare internationally is on par to the best, which tends to be Scandinavia. And in fact, we're doing better than our Western comparisons of the US and the UK.
1: So an average hides a lot. Some people are going to be doing really well and some people are not. who did well and who didn't?
4: Yeah, exactly. So I guess the most exciting part is that um, those up to the age of 64 and, and those that ended up getting the procedure that opens up your coronaries or revascularization did really well. So, so they tended to be above 80, 85% survival. So when you say reopening,
1: you're talking about either a stent or a bypass graft.
4: Exactly, exactly.
1: And was there any difference between the two? There's a lot of debate that uh, sometimes grafts give you a longer survival than stents and vice versa. Uh,
4: There is a lot of debate, uh, but I guess um, that question has been addressed in several trials and depends on the type of lesion you have and and also the amount of lesions you have. So I think both both of them have a place um, and there wasn't much of a significant difference. It, It seemed that maybe cabbage was a little bit better. That's but the
1: bypass, bypass graft.
4: Yeah, the bypass.
1: Now, age is probably the strongest risk factor for a heart attack. So it's fine saying we're doing terrifically under 64. What about over 64? Because that's the bulk of people who are having a heart attack.
4: Yeah, it, it, that's that's exactly it. I think that's, that's where we have room for improvement. Um, so specifically looking at, I guess, the worst age category, so above 80, 85 years of age, uh, these patients are not doing well. Uh, the survival is less than 18% um, and it's kind of just a downward decrease in survival as we go up in age
1: Now what about, uh, one of the things that should happen but doesn't often always happen is that you get put on blood pressure lowering drugs beta blockers, you get put on aspirin you get put on statins but not everybody gets those was there a relationship to survival as to how well you were treated after the heart attack because sometimes cardiologists wipe their hands and say I've done the stent, goodbye
4: uh, yeah, you're right. Um, unfortunately, one of the limitations of this data is that we couldn't really capture uh, the uptake of medications per se. But we we do have um, data from colleagues both in New Zealand and Australia that have shown steady increases in these over uh, over time. And this is I guess, speculated to be the reason that we see such a good survival.
1: It's well known um, in, It's well known in a heart disease that women are neglected, to be blunt. Um, they're undertreated, poorly diagnosed. Sometimes it's because they present late because they've sorted everybody else out in the family before they turn up at the emergency department. Um, How did women fare in the long term compared to men?
4: Um, well, yeah, you're right. So um, not only do women present later, but I think there is a medical bias often towards women. Um, And it's well known that, especially in the short term, women do worse. But the data on the long term has been quite unclear. Uh, And what we found is that there is an increased risk, uh, a clear increased risk for females. So we need to figure out what is causing this. And and it's, it's going to be a topic of future studies.
1: So what do do you know is the low-hanging fruit in terms of improving survival over seven years in women, older people, um, and so on, from what you've found so far?
4: So with women, it's a difficult question. I think we need to look into that more, and it'll be very interesting to see what treatment rates are um, in terms of that population. But for older older people and those with uh, multiple comorbidities, Uh, it seems that we are under-treating them currently with revascularization. Now, it's tough to say whether it's those conditions that then put them at a higher risk of harm during the treatment, but I think it's important to ask the question because thus far we've been excluding older people and uh, people with comorbidities from clinical trials.
1: Dr Boron Adlatsky is at the Lyle McEwen Hospital in Adelaide.
0: So if you have cancer, there are lots of factors that will influence your chances of recovery, the type of cancer, obviously, often but not always how early it's diagnosed and the treatment you receive, but also things like your age, whether you're overweight or obese, and whether you're a smoker. Your biological sex also plays a role, even for cancers that don't affect the reproductive organs. It's not a factor that typically changes the treatment you receive, but some researchers say it should be. One of those is Sue Haupt from the Peter McCallan Cancer Centre. Hi, Sue.
5: Hi there, Tegan. Thank you for having me on the program.
0: So we just heard that women sometimes do worse with heart disease because they're underdiagnosed. Is this something that we're seeing with cancer as well?
5: So it's an interesting uh, question you're asking because women tend to do worse with autoimmune diseases, with heart diseases, but um, they actually tend to do better with with cancers than than men do. And I'm talking here about non-reproductive cancers. So, So men they have a higher incidence and a nearly two-fold higher rate of mortality than than men do. And the other thing... And women do. Sorry, than women do. And um, the interesting thing is that the mutations that are responsible for the cause of cancer actually onset earlier in men than they do in women. And that leads to an accumulation of higher levels of mutation overall. And it also correlates with earlier onset in men than in women.
0: So women are more likely to uh, get cancer later, but they may be protected in earlier life. Why?
5: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And there's been a a fair bit of discussion about that, whether it relates to selection for our historic past. So if we look at our X chromosome, so women have two X chromosomes and men have uh, an X and a Y, on those uh, X-chromosomes and and women have uh, more expression of of their X-chromosomes. One is fully active and one is only partially active, but the X-chromosomes are rich in immune genes and genes responsible for metabolism. And the suggestion is that historically, women were balancing pregnancy and rejecting infections, and so immunity was really important for nurturing the fetus and, and then the, the progeny after. And while men in their Y-chromosome, we've had a look at the genes there, they're rich in things like wound healing. So you can think of a hunter-gatherer kind of environment where men would be needing to uh, respond quickly to, for example, uh, a wound that they had hunting out in, the, in harsh conditions. So it seems to be and an immune function there but also metabolism seems to play a role there which is interesting and affecting outcomes for cancer
0: so these are things that there's evidence to support are we seeing changes in or the differences in the way that clinicians are treating people with cancer based on their sex
5: so this is really also very very interesting because historically there's been a, a bit of a dismissal of the concept that there is disparity that's a just simply because it's due to lifestyle or to hormones, they thought, well, you know, what can we do? But now there's actually understanding that there is a genetic component involved. Um, And the other reason that's been a little bit of uh, dismissal about it is because there's been sensitivity about distinguishing between men and women, um, where differences have been... Equated to example four with weakness or inferiority, and that's related to brain research that's been undertaken. And a whole other area is related to the way that um, drugs have been tested. So in the 70s, uh, women of reproductive age were excluded from drug trialing, and that was based on things like uh, testing of thalidomide, which was leading to, to birth defects. So there was a period of time up until the late 1990s when Women were actually excluded. Women of reproductive age were excluded from tests.
0: And the assumption then just was that they would respond like men did. Like men just did the heavy lifting in terms of being in the studies, and it was assumed that it was going to be the case for all humans, regardless of sex.
5: Uh, yes, I think so. And and then in the 90s, women were introduced, but there wasn't sufficient um, deaggregation of of the uh, results on the basis of sex. And and then it was only in 2016. We're talking America in the NIH, they actually introduced a policy to um, factor equal testing of uh, medical research in in men and women. So it's really a recent thing that we started to consider that uh, there is a difference. And it's so important that we do because what is at stake is proper understanding of the causes of cancer and the lack of the basis for that um, sense a rational treatment design. So still we're at the, Edge of really fully understanding uh, the genetic basis of that and in turn properly treating for men and women on a, on a basis of understanding.
0: Right, when we're talking about male and female sex, we're usually talking about people who are XX or XY in terms of their chromosomes, but there are people who have other chromosomal makeups, um, Kleinfelter, Turner syndrome. Do you look at these in your research as well?
5: There, that's another fantastic question, because about 3% of the population is identifying as intersex. And the problem at the moment is most of the data that is available is available just for men and and for women. And we're now aware that there are uh, potential issues there. And we're really trying to access data so that we can understand that. So your example of Kleinfeld is absolutely relevant. They have multiple X's and a Y. They physically present as, as male, but they actually have a greater predisposition for breast cancer, for example, as a well. woman.
0: Right. Well, watch, I- watch this space. Uh, Sue, thank you so much for joining us.
5: <laughs> oh, thank you for having me.
0: Dr. Sue Haupt is a senior research fellow at the Peter MacCallum Cancer Centre. And, Norman, now it's time for me to sling you some questions yep. in the Health Report uh, mailbag section.
1: Yeah, and the address to send your questions in is?
0: Healthreport at abc.net.au. That was my easy question that I got to answer, and now it's my turn to ask you some. <laughs> I
1: was just distracting you in case you... Might, you know, anyway, carry on.
0: John wants to know... About tinnitus. Uh, John's just read uh, an online news article uh, about a cure for tinnitus sufferers, tinnitus breakthrough using a product. Well, I'm not going to name it because I don't want to promote it, because I have a feeling that I know what your answer is going to be. It's a concoction of 28 herbs and vitamins that sells for $69 American a bottle. Like millions of long term tinnitus sufferers, sufferers, John is holding out for a cure from the ever present head noise. Could this be the answer at last?
1: Uh, well, you know what the answer is. Um, it's not. It's unproven. Um, probably not going to do yourself any harm, but you pro- probably spend the sixty-nine dollars US on something. More useful in your life. I think what we'll do, Tegan, is let's do a segment on tinnitus because a lot of people are interested in this. There was a trend a, a few years ago, and we did a lot of coverage on it in the health report years ago, called tinnitus retraining therapy, which is about distracting yourself from the sound of the tinnitus. And there is some evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy can help. It's it's a bit like chronic pain. You're not going to solve the problem, but you can find a way of dealing with it and living with it better. Um, some of the, Some of the deal with tinnitus so this depends whether you've got tinnitus with deafness um which is a separate uh, syndrome or tinnitus just by itself with just the noise and if you if you really anybody listening to us if you really think about it and uh, and and listen to your ears in a sense we all get a little zinging noise in our ears I've got it right now but it doesn't bother me that's my voice Norman (laughs) no 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 (laughs) you well you were moving your lips but I didn't hear anything um so I, it's, but it, it's a heightened sense of that. And that doesn't mean to say it's in your head or imaginary. It's just the way it is. Um, but let's, do, let's see if we can find a, you know, a couple of good experts on it internationally and what's the latest. So let's do that. But,
0: but for now, we're saying to John, save your money.
1: Save your money. Yeah.
0: Mark's got a question, sort of not in a dissimilar vein. What's with autoimmune di- diseases? Why does the body attack itself? What evolutionary weirdness is this?
1: Um, is it a neurological disorder? Or it, it, you know, is it self destruction? So autoimmune diseases are a whole variety of different. We've um, got a spectrum from multiple sclerosis to type one diabetes to celiac disease, to rheumatoid arthritis, which is probably the commonest actually, and um, and other problems like SLE lupus. And you know, scleroderma And they can, they can go from the mild To the really disabling I mean, Scleroderma can be a really Very disabling condition And they, they have similar features And different features But the similar feature is that The immune system attacks self And, um, and what ha- what's thought to happen Is that you may be exposed For example to a virus Which has a similarity in its molecular structure to a part of the body. And it's a bit like the story with um, the Astra vaccine and the platelets. It, it, that is a kind of an autoimmune phenomenon where the sprite protein is kind of misread by the immune system and it cross-reacts with the platelets there. And that seems to be what, may, what happened, not necessarily with vaccines, but with other viruses. And in many instances, we simply don't know it could be genetic. And then you get an attack on the immune system. And it's a different kind of attack. So, for example, with multiple sclerosis, the drugs that treat multiple sclerosis are very specific to they're very effective, but they're very specific to the way the body reacts, the immune system reacts. So they're different diseases. And you know, people have theories as to why we get these autoimmune diseases. They're more common in women than in men, almost always and um and there's so there's something genetic going on it's a bit like the story with cancer that you had the stuff they just don't understand but we have some world-leading researchers into uh, autoimmune disease and there's a lot going on but they are very different diseases
0: what is the evolutionary benefit of this kind of thing though like mark asks
1: um it'll be i mean the the answer to that question is that we have a hyper-tuned immune system and that's and that's the but this is the price you pay for a hypertuned immune system. So we have ways of alerting our body's army to attack. And so we have these cells that are like sticky cells which attract the antigens that come in whether they be viruses or bacteria. They whistle up um, uh, antibodies and then T cells to come and kill. And th- it's a deadly and destructive system for to attack foreign invaders. And when it's misdirected, like any army, if you get friendly fire, um, you, you you get damage. So it's really a side effect of that highly targeted system.
0: Yeah, evolution is sometimes a real um, trade-off, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
1: it's a pain in the arse. <laughs> uh,
0: and a question from Gavin about uh, an, a segment that we had on the on the 17th of May about male and female life expectancy. It was so interesting. It was about why we see these differences across the sexes of life expectancy. And Gavin's asking about what is it that makes baby boys more likely to die prior to better health interventions? Uh, Do baby boys still suffer from more or more serious health problems following birth? Uh, And then Gavin also says postnatal depression is also reported to be higher in women that give birth to boys as well. How how might this play into gender mortality differences or even certain behaviours expressed by males?
1: Well, I, I, can't, I actually don't know that data for postnatal depression. I can look it up. But the, um, it, it's just that baby boys do die at a higher rate. So you had that story on kangaroo care in, this, in, in today's show. And boys do worse in neonatal intensive care than girls. And it's not entirely clear why that happens. It's just not known. So there's a disadvantage from birth. And then there's a behavioural disadvantage. There's a diet disadvantage. You know, blokes like eating. You know, at the weekend I went to a, a restaurant that serves huge steaks <laughs> and there were almost no no women in this <laughs> restaurant. It was all blokes feeding themselves stupid on red meat. Heart disease, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I just think that there, there's, there's more to genetics than we like to admit. And, you know, there's a probably... 50 to 70% of our dietary preferences are genetically determined and some of that is sex-linked. Sex
0: Lots of questions and not very many satisfying answers tonight, No, 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 no. There's
1: Nobel Prizes in today's uh, questions and I'm a long way off a Nobel Prize.
0: Well, if you'd like to ask us another Nobel Prize prompting question, email us healthreport at abc.net.au.
1: And we'll see you next time.
0: See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast.